am Will McHenry, and joining us today on this Ponars Eurasia podcast is Andrei Makarevich, a visiting professor of political studies at the University of Tartu. Andrei, thank you so much for joining me for this Ponars podcast. How does Russia and the EU fit in the post-liberal or even illiberal international order? Well, they play different roles in this uh, uh, allegedly uh, post-liberal international order. Uh, but first of all, uh, I think it's important to bear in mind that the whole idea of uh, transition from liberal to uh, post-liberal international order uh, came from a very widely spread feeling that something went wrong with the consensus on the post-Cold War uh, order, and something that was more or less uh, obvious only 20-25 years ago, became much more problematic and much less functional uh, in terms of foreign policies of many countries. So the idea is that we are uh, not like witnessing a collapse of the order, but like a transition. And within this transition, the European Union and Russia, they really play different roles. The European Union uh, is facing a number of uh, domestic challenges. Well, with Brexit being one of the most uh, evident uh, uh, manifestations of uh, those challenges. And uh, another challenge comes from those countries that have uh, many doubts in the principle of solidarity when it comes to the refugee crisis, etc., etc. So it's a domestic, uh, uh, domestic uh, uh, set of issues. And in the meantime, the European Union also faces limitations of uh, projecting its normative power beyond the European Union, especially when it comes to the post-Soviet uh, countries and the Eastern Partnership Program, uh, with its like 50-50 success uh, rate is one of the so Russia, in this context, is a challenger uh, to the international to to, to the uh, to the existing uh, liberal order, but it's kind of I would say it's reluctant challenger. So on the one hand, Russia tries to. Uh, challenge the normative predominance of the European Union, the very idea that the European Union represents the whole Europe. Uh, but in the meantime, Russia also plays by the rule when it comes to other uh, other situations and other consequences, for example, uh, hosting mega events. In this case, Russia plays by the rules. And uh, if you look at, for example, the doping scandal, Russia did accept all the, uh, all the rules and regulations and at least promised verbally uh, let's uh, see what how, how, what was going to happen. But at least in words, Russia does accept uh, the rules of the game. So in this sense, Russia plays a double role. On the one ch- sense, on the one hand, it, it tries to uh, challenge the, uh, the the normative core of the EU, but in the meantime, also plays by the rule in other cases. How has the post Crimea crisis in EU Russia relations changed such geopolitical areas as the Baltic Sea region? Well, it changed in many respects. Uh, it changed in in the sense that uh, the European Union, uh, well, for, for for the first time, uh, had to face a situation in a country uh, which is institutionally close to the European Union. Again, let me refer to the Association Agreement and DCFTA and visa-free uh, regime that the European Union has with 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 Ukraine. But the the challenges that this this country faces are not about, uh, not only about um, uh, people's mobility or institutions or free trade. It's a hard 
security challenges. And the European Union is, is simply uh, ill-equipped to deal with those challenges, and I think Putin perfectly knows that. So he tries to set dif- or yeah to set different rules of uh, of the game, making the European Union confront a situation in which the European Union just does not have uh, sufficient tools for that, including army and uh, clear hard security uh, posture. So in this sense, uh, the, the that's what 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 has changed. Uh, uh, Another important element is that Russia develops a number of instruments and policies that have never been uh, that uh, important before. Well, one of them is a mobilization of uh, Russian-speaking community, and uh, I mean, uh, there's a lot of literature on that. And the second track that Russia opened, well, relatively recently, it's uh, it's connections with uh, right-wing anti-EU uh, political parties, uh, not just political parties, but, but some of those uh, party leaders uh, already in power, like Matteo Salvini in uh, Italy, his interior ministry, minister and deputy uh, prime minister. So in this sense, uh, uh, Russia tries to uh, develop uh, relations with the European Union uh, uh, political communities, kind of bypassing or skipping uh, Brussels. Uh, for the sake of uh, remaining important uh, European actors, so we should not, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, overestimate this uh, U-turn from the from the west to the east. It's basically a very performative act. Russia still wants to be European power, but in a different sense, I would say, and with a different Europe. So that's that's what, uh, what, what that's the game that Russia plays. How successful are Russia's alliances with European uh, right-wing groups or nationalist conservative forces? Uh, I would say it's very contextual, and we should not overgeneralize, because sometimes when you read literature, uh, uh, there might be an impression that all right-wing forces all across Europe are uh, kind of Putin understanders or trying to you know, uh, uh, play Putin's game. This is not the case. Uh, it's just in a very limited number of countries that uh, right-wing parties are really uh, either uh, align uh, themselves intentionally with the, with, the, with the Kremlin or indirectly support Kremlin's rhetoric of foreign policy. This is basically the case of uh, France, uh, of uh, Italy. Of course, it's uh, it's 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 Hungary, it's uh, alternative uh, in uh, Germany. But this is not the case in many other countries. For example, uh, in uh, uh, all Baltic and Nordic area, local uh, conservative, national conservative right wing forces, they are not uh, yeah. among Putin's uh, even potential allies. Let's take Estonia, for example. So in in, in this sense, we should not uh, overestimate uh, Putin's uh, ability to project its power and to recruit uh, uh, politicians and uh, kind of certain part of political elites. But even, uh, I, I would say uh, that uh, even in those countries uh, that are de facto ruled by coalitions in which right-wing parties play an important role, like in Italy, for example. Well, I would say relations uh, between uh, Salvini and uh, Putin, uh, it's something like uh, an strange marriage, in the sense that Salvini did many, many things, just kind of inviting Putin for a real friendship. For example, he appeared in a T-shirt with Putin in European Parliament. Then he was uh, uh, pictured a couple of times in the, in the Red Square. He gave, he gave an interview to Dugin, probably thinking that this is one of the keys to uh, to the Kremlin. 
And the reaction from the uh, from uh, from the Kremlin, I did some uh, research on that. Uh, the reaction from the Kremlin, I would say, is was was very how shall I say uh, constrained or uh, very limited, uh, and there are many reasons for that. One is that uh, um, not many people believe in in Moscow believe that Salvini can really uh, make difference when it comes to the core issue. This is about lifting sanctions. They don't think that the investments in this friendship might you know uh, give some uh, some fruits then we know that uh, not only Salvini but some other right-wing forces are dangerously close to the neo-nazi rhetoric when it comes to ethnic minorities when it comes to uh, migration while for a country like Russia who tries to brand itself as uh, you know uh, the winner of the second world war and the uh, the country that defeated fascism uh, while that might be not a good a good type of friendship Plus, some of these countries are Islamophobic, and you know, in domestically in Russia, and being Islamophobic, that, that, that would be very problematic. So, I mean, there are always um, kind of, on the one hand, a uh, common frame and common denominator when it comes to, uh, let's say, uh, opposing or challenging the European Union. They might find some, you know, uh, something in common, but when it comes to wider array of issues, well, I would say that they have more how shall I, disagreements and disconnections with, with, with each other than uh, a real, you know, strong, uh, strong partnership. And of course, it's not about ideology as well. Moscow can play with far right, left wing parties. So in this sense, Moscow is like more in Europe, more like opportunistic actor. So it just takes opportunities that are more or less available without caring too much about ideology, in my view. Are there any new trends in the Kremlin's policies toward Russian-speaking communities in Europe? Uh, well, I would say, uh, again, the trend is that um, I, I think Russia tries to act on a country-by-country -country basis. Because, uh, for example, policy towards Russian-speaking uh, population in Germany, uh, Russophone population in Germany and in Estonia are very different from each other. Again, I did some research on that. And even the way how Russian propaganda is uh, translated to these uh, relatively large groups of people is very, uh, very distinct, very different. And uh, uh, in, in Germany a couple of years ago, we've had a first attempt to politically mobilize Russian-speaking communities uh, just before the uh, the election, on the eve of election, and trying to uh, make them an important resource of votes for a newly created uh, right-wing uh, party, IFD, which partly uh, succeeded. I mean, uh, many Russians indeed uh, prefer to vote for uh, IFD on the basis of, uh, well, let's say, from Moscow claim that Germany is becoming un un unsafe, that uh, migrants are everywhere, they are uh, doing violence and raping our uh, girls, etc. So this type of rhetoric, it did play some role in this kind of reorientation of significant part of Russians for in, in favor of um, uh, In other countries with quite strong Russian-speaking uh, uh, population, like in Estonia, well, I didn't see any changes. Uh, uh, Russia remains uh, basically like, like a cultural icon for, for people, but 
uh, uh, there's very, li- very little that Russia uh, does in practice when, when it comes to you know, developing programs and projects that might somehow uh, involve uh, uh, people with Russian-speaking uh, background. Uh, the difference is that uh, from the part, if you speak about Estonia, from the part of Estonian government, there is a change in policy, especially when it comes to the city of Narva, which is usually portrayed in the Western media as a very, uh, I would say, securitized borderland with a uh, Russian-speaking minority, and then you see all, all these parallels and analogies with, uh, with Donbass and Crimea. So what the Estonian government uh, uh, does consistently uh, during the, the last year, they bring many important cultural projects to Narva. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are behind the, 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 the Narva's beat for European Capital of Culture in 2024, which is a very big deal. Uh, and they're trying to culturally open up to Narva with a very uh, simple message. You can stay Russians and be European simultaneously. So this is not a problem of choice. You do not need to make choice either or. It's not either or, it's both. You can be culturally and, um, I know, civilizationally, religiously, religiously, linguistically Russian, but in the meantime, you can also feel yourself uh, and you, you can also be integrated into European uh, cultural milieu, which bas- basically d- d- defines your, uh, uh, your integration into Estonia and into Europe simultaneously. So in this sense, there is change from the Estonian part. I think it's a very smart move. Uh, not all Russian speakers are happy to, how shall I say, contribute to this development, this new momentum, but I think it's quite strong, and uh, that's the right thing to do. I think in the in, uh, in the in the future. Andre, thank you so much for joining me. Thank for this you very much for inviting podcast. me. My pleasure.